The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 41. Jesus is speaking. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together, to worship you, and to celebrate you. Lord, we recognize you are the ultimate authority. You put all authority under your son, Jesus Christ. And to him, Lord, we want to give all the glory and all the praise. And as we look at the scripture, Lord, please help me, as it is a a challenging one. So, Holy Spirit, please come and help me as we walk our way through this very important piece of scripture here in Luke chapter 20. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, what is your ultimate authority? When it comes down to the basics of life and you need to make a decision, what guides you in your decision-making? To whose authority do you listen? Now, it might not always be what we claim. Uh, a big word in our script, regarding our Scripture passage that we're going to be looking at today is the word authority. And as you know, throughout history, we have a real problem with authority Uh, because throughout history, we bristle at it because when exercised by humans, we always fear that authority will result in tyranny and abuse. We always fear that. And also, we have a problem with authority because we have indwelling sin in our hearts, and so we're rebellious by nature. Well, we're continuing in our series in the book of Luke called The Upside-Down Kingdom. And in this portion of Luke chapter 20, Jesus has now come to Jerusalem. And he has proclaimed himself to be the Messiah, the ultimate authority. And the religious leaders have been rebelling, rejecting him, and really to try and make him not be so popular because the crowds love him because of his so many miracles, what he's teaching about God's forgiveness for sin, and they and he's been healing so many people. Everyone is in love with Jesus, but the religious leaders, they're not in love with Jesus. They don't want to respect his authority because he is a threat to their own authority. Like we've been talking about so far in Luke chapter 20, like Ed highlighted last week. Uh, Business has been pretty good for the religious leaders. They've been making lots of money and living pretty high uh, uh, in their positions. But And so when Jesus comes to town proclaiming his authority and uh, attacking their authority, 
not directly, so far. They, uh, in Luke chapter 20, Jesus has been acting like all conquering kings of history. When he comes in and takes over a city, he goes right to church and starts teaching about the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> Isn't that what all big kings do? No, no, they don't do that. They start throwing parties and, and all that kind of stuff. But Jesus has been teaching in the temple. And at the beginning of Luke chapter 20, the religious leaders in front of everyone interrupt him while, uh, it's, well, just to set the scene, the temple is crowded. It's, it's what we call Holy Week. It's the week of Passover. The place is just flooded with people. And so Jesus is in the temple teaching about the kingdom of God. And if you want to know what that kind of a sermon might be look like, you can look at Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and kind of see what Jesus would be teaching about the kingdom of heaven. But they interrupt him. And they say to Jesus, by whose authority and who gave you this authority to do the things you do? And so throughout the chapter... Jesus has been, they've been trying to undermine his authority. He's been answering them correctly through Scripture. And so today, in this portion of Scripture, in Luke 20, 41 through 47, Jesus resolves the debate, pretty much ends the debate. Here, they have been trying to undermine his authority, and they have been questioning him, and now it's Jesus' turn. Now Jesus is going to address the religious leaders. And he resolves this debate over his authority and his position as the Messiah by issuing them a three-part challenge from Scripture. He's going to ask them a question that has three key ingredients to it that they should be able to answer. Remember, these are the religious leaders of Israel. These are the people who should be knowing the Old Testament or what they call the, or the book frontwards and backwards. They should know the answers to these questions. So Jesus is going to answer rebut their questioning of his authority by asking a three-part challenge. And then he's going to follow that by warning his disciples in a rebuke to those religious leaders who have not been doing what they should have been doing. And in that, Jesus is going to show us what a life under his authority really looks like. So let's look at that first part. Let's look at that three-part challenge that Jesus issues to the religious leaders. And uh, what he's going to show them in, this, in his question is, first of all, in the three parts, that their view of the Messiah is too small. They, the religious leaders, are invalid interpreters of Scripture. And thirdly, he's going to show that he is the only valid, ultimate authority of Scripture and of everything as the Messiah. And so he uh, turns to Psalm 110, verse 1. And he's going to show them that their view of the Messiah is really too small. Now, in this question, in this passage, there's a lot of inference going on here. And so, um, inference by meaning, like say if I was going to say to you, hey, let's go to Starbucks this week. Let's go get some Starbucks. I'm not saying let's go to a repository for interplanetary currency and procure some of that currency. No, what I'm, what I'm inferring is we're going to go to a given place, we're going to buy some beverages, we're going to have a nice conversation, just hang out for a little bit, right? So Jesus, um, so while there isn't some inference going on here, hopefully we can unpack what Jesus is asking of the religious leaders. Now, what he does is he, um, he's going to be quoting a scripture that they should know and believe. Let's look at the passage at Luke 20, verse 41. At the first verse, he says, But he said to them, 
How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Remember, these are people that Jesus is speaking to are the top interpreters of Scripture for all of Israel. In verse 41, Jesus is talking to them, and he's asking them, how can they say that the Messiah, Christ, is David's son? Well, actually, there are a lot of references to this in the Old Testament. And so just to give you some background on that, uh, there's 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verses 12 and 13, where... God says to Nathan the prophet, go to your friend David and tell him this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, for, raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, Solomon, you know, was David's son, and he, Solomon would go on and build a house for God. But in the long term, you know, a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament have a short term, and also they have a long-term aspect of it. In the long-term aspect of it, he's talking about Jesus, who would be the king, who would later come and build a house of God uh, with, that includes us. Now, also, Solomon would build a temporary temple, okay, that would be for his name, and Solomon's kingdom will end. Also, but... Uh, it talks about how I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. A son that would come from David's body would have a kingdom that lasts forever. Well, who in the Bible does anything on a forever basis? Who's the one person who does anything on the forever basis? God does. God. So the, uh, this king who will come from David's body will also be who? God. And here's another verse, just uh, quickly, uh, to show that the Messiah would be a son or an offspring of David. Isaiah 11, verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, and the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Okay, um, the stump of Jesse. Well, Jesse is King David's dad. King David's father. And so another verse. And then one last one, and we'll move on. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and establish uh, execute justice and righteousness in the land in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely and this is the name by which you'll be called the Lord is our righteousness so when Jesus is asking these religious leaders who should know all of these scriptures he said to them how can they say that the Christ is David's son and then Jesus doubles down on another important scripture Look at uh, Luke 42, Luke chapter 2, verse 42, Luke 20, 42, sorry. He says, um, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, Psalm, this is Psalm 110, verse 1, which again, the religious leaders say they believe these scriptures. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So Jesus asks, so how is he his son? Some kind of tricky verbiage here in this first verse. 
There's three people that David is talking about in the opening to his psalm. He says, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my, David, talking about himself, Lord. Okay, who is this third person who is the, who would be higher than the king of Israel? In Israel, who is higher than the king of Israel? One person. Only God is. And so then he said, uh, David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Well, of course, in Hebrew culture, and in a great many cultures in our world, sons are always lesser than the, than the father in, in terms of respect, because they always very patriarchal respect the father. But David is calling one of his future physical offspring Lord. So... From this passage of Scripture, what can we surmise that Jesus is saying and that David was saying, who is this Messiah going to be? He will be both a son of David and he will also be son of God. He will be the God. And also, what is David saying about this Messiah who would come? He's saying that this Messiah would be greater than David. And David is considered who one of the greatest kings of Israel, right? And so in this psalm, he's saying that the coming Messiah would be even greater than David. And so Jesus was perceiving what the religious leaders of that day were looking for. They had it pretty good. They were running the temple. They were bringing in money. They were living pretty well. They weren't necessarily caring for God's people by leading them in the study of the scriptures the way they should. But And also they were saying, if in their thinking, if a Messiah was to show up, they would be looking for a Messiah that would be a king like David, one that would be a political king. But Jesus is saying your view of the Messiah is way too small. What you're looking for is a, a king who will just deal with Rome. Jesus is saying what you're getting is a divine savior who is going to deal with your ultimate greatest need and the ultimate greatest need of every soul on earth. And so Jesus is saying to them, you guys are looking for some political guy? No, you got him wrong. The Messiah is God who's going to come and he's going to fix your greatest need. And so then Jesus says to them in his second part of his challenge, you guys are getting the Messiah wrong. You guys then, if you're getting the Messiah wrong, you're probably getting Scripture wrong. Well, you are getting Scripture wrong, is what Jesus is saying. And then he's saying, you are invalid interpreters of Scripture. Because the Old Testament, it tells the story of a God who created a nation. But as you look at the Old Testament and you read it, you might say it's incomplete, but more accurately, the Old Testament is unfulfilled if it does not have the Messiah that God promised. God has revealed himself in Scripture to be a God who wants to forgive, bring mercy, heal his people, bring everyone to himself. He does have to overcome this one problem that mankind has, our greatest need, which is sin. We need forgiveness of sin. But what he's, the, the point of the Old Testament 
is saying that God is going to be dealing with sin once and for all through one person who will come. And so when you look at Scripture, if you look at it without the Messiah, it doesn't make much sense because the Old Testament is filled with unexplained ceremonies, uh, unachieved purposes. Look at the histories, the kings. Things don't pan out well for kings in Israel. There's a lot of unappeased longings in the Old Testament. Look at the Psalms, people crying out to God for an answer. And then there are a lot of unfulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament because all of this is pointing to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, we have to understand, is incomplete without the Messiah. It's incomplete without Jesus. So Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, right now you're not interpreting Scripture correctly. All you care about is public opinion and your own power and your own influence, and you want to protect that, and you are rejecting the one that Scripture is about. Jesus even says in John chapter 5, verse 39, John 5, 39, he says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them, in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness of me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. Jesus is saying that their rejection of him and his authority as the Messiah, while they're trying to undermine his authority, Jesus is saying, look, you guys are supposed to be in Israel's interpreters of Scripture. You haven't been doing the job. You're invalid interpreters of Scripture because if they don't and won't receive whom Scripture is about, then they totally misunderstand Scripture. That's important for us. If we want to know what Scripture is about, we have to look to who Scripture is about. And the religious leaders have been completely missing this, and they've been rejecting Christ. So that's the second part of Jesus' challenge of the religious leaders in his question here. And then finally, And the third part of his challenge, Jesus basically says, I am the authority. And we can kind of see this because he has been showing us, as he's been answering the uh, religious leaders with all their questions, he's been interpreting Scripture perfectly and declaring himself as the Son of God, the answer to Scripture. And you can kind of tell that Jesus has won the debate by looking at the way the debate ends. Because after Jesus asked this question, what do we hear in a rebuttal from the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees? How do they answer Jesus' challenge with this question? Silence. Game is over. Time's run out. Jesus wins. Jesus has proclaimed himself to be the authority. You can tell, uh, you can tell that the religious leaders have acquiesced to this by looking at verse uh, 26 in Luke chapter 20. You see that in your Bible there in verse 20. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. And Luke 39 again, Luke records for us, after Jesus had answered the question last week about leveret marriage, then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you've spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him a question. So Jesus now has vindicated his authority by showing the religious leaders in his three-part challenge, first of all, that their view 
of the Messiah is too small. They wanted a political king like David, but what they got was a divine savior who's going to take care of their ultimate need. Secondly, that they're really invalid interpreters of Scripture because if they're getting the Messiah wrong, they're getting all of Scripture wrong and all the Old Testament wrong. And then Jesus shows us that he is the only valid authority. He is the one we need to take our cues from. He is the one to listen to because he is the Messiah. He is the one greater than David. He is the authority. So now we see him continue to uh, end the debate now after he's issued his three-part challenge. He turns and then warns his disciples in a very public rebuke of the religious leaders. He's asked them a question. They're silent. And now Jesus turns to his followers there as he's teaching in the temple. In Luke 20, verse 45, he says, And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Here the religious leaders have been trying to condemn Jesus, but then Jesus publicly shows them up in his warnings to his disciples. So what's Jesus saying to his disciples about how they should live as he makes a comment about the scribes and the Pharisees. He's basically saying, don't be like them. He points out six things for, that, uh, for the, the, his disciples to be on the lookout for. If they were people who were truly living under God's authority, humbly living for him, rightly living, would they be doing these things? He points out their robes and they, how they wear love, that like to wear long robes. What do the robes say about the religious leaders? The religious leaders are saying, look, just look how religious I am. Check me out. They love to receive public greetings in the marketplace. They love to be recognized. They love to show everyone by saying, hey, look at the club I am in. Thirdly, he points out they love the best seats in the synagogue. What's that basically saying? It's saying, hey, notice me at worship. And then he looks, and they also want the best places at feasts. Again, the religious leaders are saying, hey, Notice my influence. And then he points out widows. They devour widows' houses. Basically, their lack of compassion, their quest for their own lifestyle, and their comfort, their pride, their power, they don't think about anybody else. They don't think about the poor and the defenseless. And then uh, the sixth thing Jesus points out, for a pretense, for a pretense. Our, when you do something for a pretense, is that valid? Is that full of meaning and importance? No, it's a pretense. It's hollow. For a pretense, they make long prayers. Fake religiosity. It's all for show. Also, this would further invalidate their role as religious leaders and their authority because they should be... Uh, 
offering prayers uh, and petitions to God on behalf of God's people, uh, but they're obviously not doing that. And so as the scribes and the Pharisees, religious leaders, have been doing all this, and rather than living for God's glory, whose glory have the religious leaders been living for? Their own, their own glory. So what does Jesus say? What's Jesus saying with this rebuke to his own uh, disciples? What is he saying to us? He's basically saying, how does life look in the kingdom of God? How does life look under his authority? Basically, Jesus is saying, when you submit to me and live under my, my authority, if you've received my grace, my forgiveness, you've received eternal life, if you've inherited the kingdom of God along with me because you're trusting in me, live humbly. Take your cues from me. Look at how I live. Look at the way I do things. Look, if I look at the robes in my life, do I look at you know, my faith? Do I do it just for outward show? Public greetings? Do I want public greetings? And when I go to all these different venues, when I go to work, the marketplace, out in public, and the political sphere, the religious sphere, whose glory are we to live for? Who do we point people at? Ourselves? Jesus is saying, no. Point them to him. Point, point your, we should live our lives pointing ourselves to Jesus Christ and be people of compassion. He pointed out the, in the widows, how the widows were being neglected, or they were, the widows' houses were being um, uh, devoured. It's interesting to notice uh, Luke, who wrote this portion of Scripture, also records in the book of Acts, chapter 6, what this looks like, what Christ was calling his people to do, how we should live and react, and uh, to bring him glory in all these spheres of life that we impact. Look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. They said, hey, this is a good idea. And they chose seven men. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the disciple of the apostles, excuse me, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And then the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And then here in Acts 6, chapter 7, check out this interesting phrase. Because the church committed itself not only to preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also to humbly, compassionately meeting the needs of the people. Look what happened in the end of Luke, and then to verse 7. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Interesting what happened here. We're looking at this debate that's concluding in Luke chapter 20. 
Maybe these priests are there in the temple, but they're seeing it lived out in Acts chapter 6 by a church, the church of Jesus Christ, that is cultivating a life of compassion by appointing people to deliberately minister compassionately to people's needs. And so that's why I would like to commend you, our volunteers, who help here at Fountain of Life. You're cultivating this life of compassionate uh, service. Uh, our deacons, our visitation team, all our volunteers. Thank you, and I want to commend you. Keep doing, keep doing, keep um, living out a life of humble compassion by meeting people's needs. Because it does make an impact. It made an impact in the early church, and it still makes an impact today. So how do we apply all this? Jesus has concluded this amazing interaction that he's been having in the temple. He's shown that he is the ultimate authority, and then he's calling his disciples to live a life of humble compassion. Well, how do we apply this? What does it look like to submit to Christ's authority and live a life of humble compassion? Well, first, we need to submit to Jesus Christ. First, we need to come to him because the reason he came was to meet our greatest need. And our greatest need he meets in himself as being the ultimate authority, not only of the natural and the supernatural world, he's also the authority, has the authority to forgive sins. He uniquely has this authority because man's greatest need, our need is for the forgiveness of sins. Um, our greatest need is to escape the wrath of God poured out on sinners eternally in hell, and only the gospel of Jesus Christ meets that need. We need to be forgiven of our sins because if we're not forgiven, what happens to the person that is not forgiven? What really sends people to hell? Sins? Not really. Well, yes, but that's not the whole story. Hell, as John MacArthur once said, Hell is only occupied by people whose sins have never been forgiven and never will be. Conversely, heaven is populated by people whose sins have been completely forgiven. So what causes us to escape the wrath of God for sin? It's the forgiveness of of our sins that Jesus Christ alone has the authority to give us. And not only does he have the authority to give us complete forgiveness, he won it for us by dying in our place on the cross. He took our penalty for sins He on the cross. God judged his, sent his full wrath for sins upon his only begotten beloved son, and he, Jesus paid the price. And how do we know? that Jesus paid the full price, and the fact that we are forgiven when we come to Christ, Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus rose from the grave. He is alive today, and we need to live a life showing that because we've received this wonderful forgiveness, eternal life through Jesus Christ, because we've been forgiven, now we can move on to a life of humble compassion. Now, if we have a question about Jesus having the authority. There's a great passage from Mark's gospel. We're almost done. In Mark chapter 2, it's kind of interesting, this whole debate about Jesus' authority, it kind of begins 
uh, in the gospel narratives here in Mark chapter 2, where Jesus has been teaching all day in the uh, in, in, in house that he lived in, in Capernaum. And you probably know the story. This is where he's teaching. It's so crowded. And then these four guys have a good friend that is a paralytic. They want Jesus to heal their friend. And they will even go so much to the point where they go in, on, if you've heard the story, they tear off the roof off the place because they're going to let their friend down on ropes to just set him in front of Jesus because, they, again, they know Jesus is the only way that their paralytic friend is ever going to be healed. And they only know that the only way that it's going to happen, they know that Jesus has got to heal him because the only way their friend is going to get out of that house is if he walks out because they're not going to be able to pull him back up through that same roof. And so in Luke, Mark, excuse me, in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to a paralytic, or the paralytic? Is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Jesus, as the Son of Man, has the authority to forgive sins. And he won the, and the, the, the right to, to forgive our sins. Well, he was given to him, but also he won our salvation by dying on the cross in our place, so that now all those who believe in him can know that they have res- complete forgiveness for their sins. In Acts chapter 13, uh, verse 38, Paul writes, says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So, what's it look like? Submit to his authority, for he is the... Um, the ultimate authority, and his kind of authority is a life that we don't have to fear tyranny and abuse in the future. As Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, verse 25, he said, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, Authority, And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. That will be the, the burden of unforgiven sins. And Jesus says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, live under my authority, and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When the world exercises authority, we fear tyranny abuse. What do we find when we live under Christ's authority? Rest. Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if we've received this great grace, 
then let us live lives of humble compassion, sharing this great news that we've received. And in every sphere that we walk into, we don't live for our own glory. Now we live for Christ's glory because Christ has everything to offer that the world needs for man's greatest need to be. Um, we need to be people who will share his gospel and then meet people's compassionate, meet, meet people's needs compassionately. I just want to conclude with this one verse. How is important that we serve and we give and we love the people around us compassionately the way Christ did. When our lives are all said and done, when all the things that we think about we have to get done in this life, the things I have to do, Christ calls us to be people of compassion and look how important it is because Jesus deals with this when he talks about the final judgment. And I'll conclude with this. Looking at the final judgment in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 40. When it's all said and done, this is what Jesus says is most important. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And look at these descriptors of the people who lived under Christ's authority and lived lives of humble compassion. Verse 35, Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So our call today is to submit to Jesus Christ, receive his forgiveness, live to bring him glory wherever we are, and cultivate, cultivate <laughs> a life of humble compassion and service to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you are the ultimate authority and you can address every need that we have. You have addressed our greatest need under your authority. You came, you died for our sins, and now through you only do we find forgiveness of sins and eternal life in you. Father God, I pray that you'd help us to find new ways to live out lives of humble compassion, sharing what you have given us with the people around us, both uh, what you've given us spiritually, what you've given us physically. Lord Jesus, we want to live to your glory in every area of our lives. We ask you would help us grow in that area. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. 
For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.